If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the New Testament book of Luke. Third book of the New Testament will be in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, and today we're going to begin a series on the Gospel according to Luke. And so, of course, with a series, we like to start at the beginning. And um, it's been several years since I preached through a gospel. I've, I've preached through some other books since then. But I think the last time I preached through a gospel was the Gospel of Mark. I'm not sure when that was. I, I look back, I have uh, sermon notes on my computer going back to 2008. And I look back and I didn't see any uh, that covered the Gospel of Mark in that time. So it's been several years since I went through uh, one of the Gospels. And uh, I, I think it's a beneficial time to see how these different gospel writers present Jesus to us. And if you listen to me for a while, you might have noticed that I like to do serieses, especially preaching through a whole book. And the reason for that is, it, well, there are several reasons. Number one um, is, the re- is the way that Christians usually do Bible study. And what I mean is, usually whenever Christians do Bible study, whenever they do devotions, they might have a little book or something like that that has a scripture and maybe a, a, an account or a story or something like that. And there will be a, a, a verse out of Galatians one day, and the next day it will be out of Proverbs, and it will just be kind of all over the place. And that's, I'm not saying you can't get anything out of that, because it's God's Word, and it's living and active, sharpening a two-edged sword, and it's, so it can speak to us, it can minister to us, and give us what we need. But really... That's not a very good way of doing the Bible. And, and the reason for that, if, if you think about a DVD, you put a DVD in, it'd be like watching a movie, a really long movie. We'll just say Gone with the Wind because it's a real long one. And, and you put that in, and you just randomly choose a chapter, randomly choose a scene, watch about two minutes of it, and shut it off. And then the next week you go, and, and you choose a different chapter and a different scene, and you watch a minute or two, and you shut it off. And then you miss a couple weeks, then you do it again, and, and you're just all over the place. Now... You may figure out eventually what's going on in that movie. But when you're watching it, you might see a scene here, you might see some or hear some dialogue there, and you might think, well, this dialogue, this this person speaking, this is what it means. And then if you watch the whole thing, then you say, Oh, well, I was kind of wrong on that because I thought it was this, but I didn't have the context of what I was hearing, what I was seeing. And so, so what, what happens many times is we read the Bible that way. We'll take a p- portion here and a portion there. And it's kind of like watching a movie that way. We, we don't see how the pieces fit together. We don't see the argument, the flow that the uh, scripture writer is, is, uh, is using. We don't see how the pieces interact with one another. And so we, we get really a deficient view of what the Bible is telling us. And also, um, one of the reasons I like doing a series, especially preaching through a book, is because it helps us, it forces us sometimes to deal with stuff we don't want to. Now, we all have a hobby horse. We all have uh, soapboxes that we like to get up on. And so we have texts that we tend to go to, tend to gravitate to. But let's face it, we all have some that we kind of stay away from, don't we? Maybe it's because it's not easy to understand. Maybe it's because, frankly, uh, we don't like what it says. And so we tend to try to stay away from it. But when you preach through a book, when you study through a book, it forces you to deal with it no matter what. Whether it's something that you like or agree with or not, it has a word to say to us. So where we pick up in the Gospel of Luke, um, right at the beginning, Luke addresses this Gospel to a man named Theophilus. Now we don't know who Theophilus is. He's mentioned two times in the Bible here at the beginning of Luke and at the beginning of Acts. And Luke wrote both of them. And so these were, these were works that he wrote to Theophilus. 
Now, some people say that believe that Theophilus was the one who financed this because it would not have been a, a fast or uh, cheap uh, venture to put all this down. But whatever whatever the reason is, what, whether he was the financier or not, we know that the reason that Luke does this is because he wants uh, Theophilus to know the truth of the gospel that he's believed. So if you found Luke chapter 1, I'd like you to stand with me in honor of God's word if you're able. And we're going to read several verses, but we're going to read about the birth, or the, uh, uh, the birth announcement at least, of John the Baptist. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now I want you to be paying attention to some of these things about the, the division and the lots and all that. I'm going to hopefully explain some of that in just a moment. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of, in, of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will, will bear a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he, will be, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and, and, the, um, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years." The angel said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in the proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept, her, kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in these days, when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, the story of Jesus actually before Jesus was ever born and he starts with the birth of a relative of his named John we call him John the Baptist or, or John the Baptizer and so uh, it, it's here in this in this text I want you to see the first thing and that is a providential meeting 
a providential meeting. Now I want you to look back at, at verse 5. And it's easy whenever we think about this text to see what this meeting was. It was when Gabriel met with Zacharias. Your Bible may say Zechariah, same name, just pronounced and spelled a little bit different ways. Now, what is providence? Well, we talked about this a while back, but providence is God's will, His sovereignty, interacting with time. And so uh, sometimes we look back over our lives, and, 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 and you can probably do this, I can do this. Uh, you look back over your life and you say, well, if I had to met this person then this wouldn't have happened, and then that wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't have ended up where I was. Now, that could be a good thing, and it can also seem like a bad thing at the time. But when we look back over our lives, we can see all these things that, that some people may see as a chance happening, of a coincidence, of, of a serendipitous occasion. But really, that is not chance, that's not luck, that is God's providence in action. It's Him working out His will in time. Now, when you look at... Zacharias meeting with Gabriel, it all happens in a certain time in a certain place, in a certain way. How do we see God's providence in this event? Well, for us to understand what's going on here, we need to do some background. Now, when I, when I was studying this, my mind just went, okay, I mean, because uh, I've read the Gospel of Luke, I'm sure many of you have too. You, you read it, and there's some amazing things with some of the parables, some of the miracles and things that happen. But when I got to digging in, just these first few verses, my mind was just, I I was just blown away. And so hopefully, um, you might not be as as impressed with what happened as I was, but but hopefully uh, you'll you'll be kind of like, wow, that's that's pretty cool. So this event with uh, Gabriel and Zacharias began in Genesis. Okay, now when when you read verse 5, it says that, uh, look what it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. You remember later it talks about him doing his service and uh, lots being cast and so forth. Now, if I were to ask probably anybody here, and you, and you didn't look at your study notes in your Bible, what does it mean when it talks about the division of Abijah? Probably none of us here would have any idea what it's talking about, right? So here's some background on this. Way back in Genesis... You remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You remember him? So Jacob is called by God. He's, he's renamed Israel. Jacob has some sons. And one of those sons was a man by the name of Levi. Well, Levi has some descendants. One of them was named by the man of, uh, a man by the name of Amram. He had some kids you probably know. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Okay? So through the process of time, God set up a religious system with sacrifices and all these things, temple service and, and so forth. And he said, the descendants of Levi are going to be my people. They're going to be the ones that minister in the temple. In particular, a descendant of Aaron, okay, so Levi's up here. One of his descendants is Aaron. A descendant of Aaron can be a priest. So understand, all the priests are Levites, but not all the Levites are priests. We, are, are we on the same page? Okay. So, so God set that up. He, 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 put in, he put in place this system. Has anybody done genealogy work very much? I know a couple of us have. I've, I've done a little bit. And if you have, you probably have, have noticed that you may start with an ancestor back here. And when you look at all their descendants, boy, it gets big fast, doesn't it? I mean, especially when they had two, three, five, six kids, it, it can just, I mean, they just have hundreds or even thousands of descendants in a few generations. That's what happened with Levi. In just several, several uh, generations, he had thousands 
of descendants. So by the time, fast forward several hundred years, we get to the time of David, King David. There are all these priests in place. So many so that David said, I'm going to divide them up into 24 divisions, 24 courses. And each one, each one of these courses, each one of these divisions will serve during the main feast. But then they'll serve two non-consecutive weeks of the year. The eighth of those, the uh, division number eight, was the division of Abijah. Okay, so remember what we just read, verse 5. He was of the division of Abijah. Now there are some things that happened after the exile. We're not getting into all that. But, and, and just, just to give you some context, I've seen estimates of priests during the time of, of Jesus as being anywhere between eight and 18,000. 8,000 8, and 18,000. So there are a lot of priests. So it's no wonder they divide them up into divisions. Even when you divide, we'll say on the low end, 8,000 by 24, you still have a whole bunch. How do you decide who gets to do what? So what they would do is they would cast lots, kind of like us drawing straws. And the reason they did this was because they trusted in God's sovereignty. Now the Bible says in, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so what they would do is they would say, okay, let's cast lots, and you get this job, and you get that job. And it, was all, it was all determined what we would say by chance, but it was all God's sovereignty. So one of the areas of service was in the offering. And they had all kinds of offering, burnt offerings and different things. One of the offerings was the offering of incense. And the burning of incense uh, represented the prayers of God's people going up to God. Now, if you are familiar with the temple complex at all, you, you might remember there are different courts, different uh, sectioned off portions like courtyards. And they got progressively closer to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is and where God's presence was manifested. So there are the court of women, the court of the Gentiles, and so on and so forth. Inside the sanctuary, the holy place, there was a table, about two foot square, and on it they would burn incense. And so one of the jobs that they would choose by lot was the guy that would go in and shovel the ashes off of it. Then another guy that was chosen by lot, he would go to the altar of burnt offering, burnt sacrifice, and they would take the live, the hot coals from that and take it to this table of incense, the altar of incense. And then another guy, he was chosen by lot to take the incense and put it on those hot coals so that the, so the incense could arise to God and he would offer a prayer for the people. So Zechariah, or Zacharias, was chosen by lot, not chance, God's sovereignty here, to be the one to go into the temple. And, and okay, so the, the holy place is here, the sanctuary is here. The Holy of Holies is just beyond that. The sanctuary is as close as you can get to the Holy of Holies without actually going in. One guy got to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. That was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And between the, the, the Holy of Holies and the holy place, the sanctuary, there was this heavy veil, a heavy curtain. And it was by that curtain, by that veil, that the incense table was set up. So because you got to be so close to God's presence, that job of putting the incense on, that was the biggest deal. Of all the jobs 
that was the biggest, the most valuable, the most prized job. And, and I, I've read that it was so valuable they don't let people do it one time in their life so that other people might have a chance to get to go in into God's presence like that. So here's Zacharias, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's been, he's been a minister, he's been a priest for years. He's old. He's finally gotten to go in to the holy place to put that... Uh, to put that incense on, and some of the some of the Jewish writings seem to indicate that that they that there was an allowance after you've done that to offer up a time to prostrate yourself before God and offer up a personal prayer there in the holy place. And it's probably during that time when he's doing that, Gabriel appears. So we have all this stuff that's set up that's set in motion back in the book of Genesis that culminates in Zacharias visiting with Gabriel to find out he's going to have a baby. Now, we don't know what his prayer was. He could have been praying that God would send a deliverer. He could have been praying that that his wife would have a child. We don't know what he was praying, but Gabriel says the answer to it is the birth of John the Baptist. The, The answer from heaven is all wrapped up together. It was a providential meeting. Now, Now, I say all that to say this. This was not chance. This was not happenstance. This was not uh, just serendipity. This was God's providence. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time came, some translations render that at at the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's Jesus. Who was Jesus' forerunner? John the Baptist. So the, the coming of the Messiah began way back, actually began back in the Garden of Eden, but we'll just fast forward up to the time of Jacob, and God had worked through all these things to get, his, to get the Messiah to come onto the scene at just the right time. He didn't come onto the scene five years too early, five years too late. At just the right time, God sent forth the Messiah, born under the law. He orchestrated the events of world history to accomplish His end. What am I saying? I'm saying that God is in control. We look around, we see all this stuff happening, we say, I, don't make, I can't see how any of it makes sense. Listen, God is in control. He's working out His plan and His will. Now, we need to move on, and we will, but I just want to mention one thing very quickly. You remember back in Genesis again, we talked about Jacob. He had, he had some sons. And you remember towards the end of his life, he blessed them. Remember, he brought them all together, and he was... He gave them a blessing, and, and here's what he said in Genesis 49.10. One of his sons' name was Judah, and it says in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So when the ruler's staff, the, the, the kingship, was removed from Judah, of course, remember, David and Solomon, all them were descended from Judah. When that rulership was taken away, then Shiloh, which is a, a, an Old Testament title for the Messiah, when all that happened, Messiah was going to come. Look back at verse 5. In the days of Herod, what does it say? King of Judea. Now, there are all kinds of Herods, and there are a few different ones mentioned in the Bible. This is Herod the Great. He died in 4 B.C. Herod the Great was partially Jewish, but he was loyal to Rome. And the Roman Senate, 
and this is a fact of history, the Roman Senate gave Herod a title. You want to know what it is? King of the Jews. The Roman Senate gave Herod the Great, who was really a nut job, a title, King of the Jews. The scepter had departed from Judah. The ruler's staff was no longer between his feet. Guess what? Shiloh came. The Messiah came. That was, and that's why, you remember when the Magi came to Herod, same guy, Herod the Great, they said, we're looking for the one who was born what? King of the Jews. And that's why Herod was like, excuse me? I'm king of the Jews. And this is, I mean, he didn't say all this because he's trying to fool him. But that's why he got so uh, uh, upset about things because he was king. He was king of the Jews. And here's one that was going to be a a competition to his throne. That's why he killed the innocents. So, do you see why when I was reading this, I was like, I mean, it just blew my mind, all this stuff that was wrapped up. But there's even more. There's even more. The, The next thing I want you to see, we saw a providential meeting Next, I want you to see a prophesied ministry. A prophesied ministry. We get a glimpse of John's future ministry at different points in the Old Testament, about, uh, especially in the book of Isaiah, about him going, preparing uh, the way of the Lord, and so on and so forth. But the text I want to point you to, and, and you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down, it's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Now, Bible trivia time. What's the last book of the Bible? Or not the last book of the Bible. Last book of the Old Testament. Yes. Malachi, you're right. So Malachi, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. There are four chapters of Malachi. There are six verses in Malachi. So the last two verses of the last book of the Bible, or the last book of the Old Testament, the last two verses before everything goes silent, the intertestamental period, about 400 years of silence. Here's what God said. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now when I read that, it's like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and that doesn't happen very often. Because what does that say? The very last word that God gives before heaven goes silent for 400 years is I'm sending a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of many. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, once you look at verse, um, look at verse 17. Gabriel's speaking. He says, It is he, John, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepare for the Lord. Why did the hair on the back of my neck stand up? Because God said, it's coming. And then silence. And then all of a sudden, he bursts onto the scene and says, it's time. It's starting right now. Here comes John the Baptist. This thing's getting going. John's going to come onto the scene. Jesus come onto the scene. The Messiah's here. And I imagine Zacharias went, what? <laughs> I mean, really, can you imagine being Zacharias... I mean, how would, you, how would you understand all that? And whenever I looked at that, the very last word that God had said to them was, look out for one, it's like Elijah, he's going to be coming, he's going to be preaching, and here comes John the Baptist. God says, I'm picking up right where I left off, I haven't fallen asleep, I, have not, I, I was preparing things, it's time, 
Here it is. They should have known. They should have recognized. Now what kind of ministry did he have? Well, first it was prophesied. We just got through looking at that. We look at, at the book of Isaiah and it talks about the one, the, the voice crying, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and uh, make his way straight, make the, the, the mountains flat, fill up the valleys. He's coming. We see that fulfilled in, in John the Baptist. We see it in the book of Malachi, chapter 4. It was a prophetic ministry. Not in the sense of foretelling the future, but rather foretelling the Word of God. That's really, if you read the, the, the Old Testament, we usually think of prophets as being foretellers. Of things that, uh, they're, they're telling things that will happen in the future. They did that sometimes, but their primary role was one of foretelling. They're saying, this is the way you all are living, this is the way you should be living, come back to God. And so, John the Baptist had that kind of ministry. Remember, he even stood up to Herod a ruler, a powerful ruler, and called him out. And Herod killed him for it. It was a prophetic ministry. It was a ministry of proclamation. He preached the coming kingdom of God. And it was one of preparation. How did he say people need to prepare? He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Finally, and and this is, again, going to be very quick, We have a providential meeting. We see a prophesied ministry. The last thing I want you to see is a promise made good. A promise made good. Look at the last couple verses. God had made a promise. He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send, uh, I'm going to give you a child, John the Baptist. He's going to do these things, verses 24 and 25. After After those days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She was an old lady. He was an old man. And I've wondered, since I've had children, they, they say God gives them to you young. And I think there's a reason for that, because sometimes you've got to have the energy to keep up with them. And you get later in life, and it, boy, it's tough. I just wonder what, like Abraham, Sarah, can you imagine the kids that are running around? Here's Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're old. We don't know how old they were, but they're old. Bible's, that's what the Bible says. Man, that would have been tough. But it was still a promise fulfilled, and they were so joyful that it happened. All these years she had been barren. She hadn't been able to have children. And see, part of the reason for that, there, I mean, that's, that's a natural pain to not be able to have children. But on top of that, in their culture, you remember if you read the Old Testament, there were times when God would say, if you break my covenant, here are these curses. And one of the curses was barrenness. And conversely, if you keep my covenant, you experience a blessing. Well, as the Bible say, children are a blessing from the Lord. And so here's this, here's this aged man and woman never able to have kids. So the Jews would think, naturally, that must mean they're bad sinners. But what did the Bible say? They're actually righteous. Sometimes, you're not, sometimes things are not what they appear. And so, so God gives them a child. He's trustworthy. If he says he'll do it, he'll do it. He said, I promise I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a child. Verse 24, 25, it happened. She became pregnant. He's going to go before the Savior and announce his coming. Now listen, the message of John is just as relevant today as it was back then. Now he was on 
the before side of the kingdom of God. Today we're on the after side of the kingdom of God. Jesus initiated the kingdom of God whenever he came. Remember these, uh, uh, the Great Commission, all authority has been given uh, on heaven and earth. On heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and all the world, preaching and teaching, make disciples. And he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now what was John's message to make one ready for the kingdom of God? One word, repent. Repent. That's the same word that we need to hear today. If you would see the kingdom of God, you must repent. There was a man, a man by the name of Nicodemus, came to Jesus one night and he said, What must a man do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? Actually, I don't think he said all that. But Jesus said, If you'd see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You won't see it, you won't experience it, unless you're born again. That is a supernatural act. We need, we must repent, we must turn from our sins, we must put our faith in Christ alone for salvation. Because the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, as you bow your heads and close your eyes. Folks, we're not waiting for a Messiah. The Messiah has come. His name's Jesus. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. On the cross, the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. If any of us would put our faith in him, Trusting in Him alone for salvation, not just recognizing that He existed, that He was a good moral man, maybe even recognizing He was the Son of God. The demons did that. I can recognize there's a chair there, but I'm not trusting it until I put my weight on it. You can recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, but until you put your weight on Him, and until you rest on Him, until you depend on Him for your salvation, that acknowledgement doesn't do any good. If you've never turned to Christ for salvation, I call on you to do that today. For those of us who have done that, remember God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. If He said He'll do it, He'll do it. Now I'm not talking about warm, squishy feelings. I mean, in His Word, if He said He'll do it, He'll do it. Say, Pastor, I've messed up, I've sinned, I've done some gross immorality. Can I be forgiven? God said, if you'll confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll keep His word. Say, Pastor, I'm so timid to, to, to share my faith. Paul said, pray for us that we'd have boldness to speak the word of God. He'll give you that boldness. So there's a day coming when, when people will drag you before rulers and, and all sorts of people and, and put you on the spot. 
He said, don't think about what you're going to say in that day. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. He said, I, I, I'm afraid to witness to somebody, to share some, my faith with somebody, because I don't know what to say. He'll give you the words to say. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a, uh, a promise-keeping God, that it's impossible for you to lie. Not difficult, not unlikely, impossible. And God, I thank you that, that this great event of the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ, started way back in Genesis. You said you'd send a Savior, and you did. And you didn't just look down the corridors of time and try to work out the best plan. It all happened according to your counsel, your will, your foreordained plan. Thank you that you're big enough to turn hearts. Thank you that you're big enough to orchestrate world events on the global scale, but also on the personal scale to accomplish your goals, your ends, your will. God, I pray that you'd help each of us as we look around these times of uncertainty to trust in you because this is not out of your control and it didn't catch you by surprise. God, we thank you for being who you are and letting us have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.